October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 40, More Perfect Unions. Last time, we talked about how A.T. Jones rose to prominence in the aftermath of 1888 and how he subsequently made a mess of things throughout the 1890s. He often carried things way too far, unilaterally made church policy, and sometimes careened into extreme positions. He went from hero to, well, still a hero, but with a dark cloud following him around. Early in 1902, John Harvey Kellogg sat down to write a postcard. On the front, he included a montage of five pictures of his beloved Battle Creek Sanitarium, this huge, prestigious institution which one newspaper called a Mecca for Sick Folks. On the front of Kellogg's postcard, four of the buildings stood tall and proud. They were three, four, and five-story fortresses of medical enlightenment. But the building in the center was being consumed by fire. Underneath the picture, it simply read, Burned, February 18, 1902. The postcard reassured the sanitarium supporters that all 400 guests were saved, except one disoriented elderly man who wandered back into the building. Kellogg praised the bravery of his nurses and with typical decisiveness promised to have a new fireproof building up in five months. All that he needed was money, and the initial estimate was that the fire did $300,000 to $400,000 worth of damage. Kellogg wanted his friends to begin sending money at once. Now, of course, in reality, the new building took over a year to build, not five months, and cost about $600,000. But details, details. For Kellogg, the loss was about more than a building, bricks and wood. It was the loss of a loved one. At the end of his postcard, he acknowledged that, quote, we have met with a great loss, but the sanitarium still lives, end quote. The sanitarium lives. It's alive. Even the picture on the postcard carried this message. Sure, one building burned down, but here are four more standing defiantly. News of the sanitarium's destruction went far and wide, but perhaps none captured its personal significance to Kellogg than the Salt Lake Herald in its opening line. It read, quote, the Kellogg or Seventh-day Adventist Sanitarium was destroyed by fire early today, end quote. The reporter wasn't sure whether to call it the Seventh-day Adventist or the Kellogg Sanitarium. To whom did it really belong? The sparks that flew over that question would soon burn down a lot more than a building. Some of the sick who would come to visit this Adventist Mecca were people like Amelia Earhart, Henry Ford, Teddy Roosevelt, and John D. Rockefeller. Oh, and Booker T. Washington and Mary Todd Lincoln. Oh, and Leo Tolstoy, who enjoyed the sanitarium's vegetarian recipes. Maybe you're getting the point. The Adventist Sanitarium in Battle Creek was cutting edge, sitting at the intersection of 19th century natural health reform movements and 20th century medicine. Mecca, indeed. And in some ways, it was the success of the sanitarium that made it such a problem for Seventh-day Adventist leaders. In the early 1900s, Kellogg employed about 2,000 people, mostly Adventists. 
And by contrast, the general conference, you know, the organization that hires the pastors and manages the work around the world, yeah, they employed about 1,500 people. That is, more people worked for the sanitarium than for the church itself. This meant that the nearly 2,000 Adventists who worked for Kellogg weren't working somewhere in the world for the church. And those Adventists who worked for Kellogg often made very little money, which means they weren't giving as much to the cause. And on top of all of this, Kellogg was constantly fundraising among Adventists. In other words, Kellogg and church leaders were both eating from the same pie. Of course, ask any Adventist back then, and they'd tell you that they were super proud of the sanitarium. Its prestige was a testimony not just to Kellogg's leadership, but a vindication of the church's health teachings. Kellogg described the sanitarium, a word he coined, you'll remember, as having the professional atmosphere of a hospital, the comforts of a hotel, and the freedom of a home. Its goal was to apply the latest ideas of how to improve the human life. And yet I think many Adventist leaders back then might, might, admit that the sanitarium had grown far beyond their vision for it. Adventist leadership was focused on expanding as fast as possible around the world. That is, they wanted to expand horizontally. Kellogg, on the other hand, was expanding as fast as he could vertically to build the sanitarium better and bigger and to bring more and more and more people there, and it needed more and more and more money. The admirer might, well, admire Kellogg for his restless humanitarian vision. The cynic might think Kellogg had built his Tower of Babel, and that it would be God-proof as well as fireproof. Well, this is all a long way to say that Kellogg's vision for his institution was not the church's vision, and vice versa. By the early 1900s, the Adventist message had gone around the world. In Europe, Adventists stretched from Portugal to Russia, from Norway to Turkey. In South America, they wandered from Brazil to Chile to Peru. In the Caribbean, you could find them in Jamaica, Barbados, and Puerto Rico. In Africa, you could meet them in South Africa, up to Malawi. In Asia, they went to Japan, Indonesia, China, and India. Oh, and don't forget about the South Pacific. All of these places are filled with amazing stories. And if any of you ever want to do a podcast on Adventist history and don't know what to talk about, talk about this. Most Adventist histories are written by Americans. So if you live in one of these countries, ask around. Find some stories that maybe we haven't heard of yet. Do some research. There's still so much to learn. Now, some of you may be wondering, how did this little church spread out so fast? The short answer is mostly by accident. Sometimes they found ships and used them to send literature to wherever it was going, hoping that whoever opened the crate would read it and believe it. Other times, it was a friend of friendship evangelism. So, John Loughborough introduced the Sabbath to a gold miner in California, and well, that gold miner went to find diamonds in South Africa next, where he met two people who were already keeping the Sabbath. Then some of those Adventists went north into modern Zimbabwe, and boom, Adventists have a presence in South Africa and don't even know it. No sooner had the church sent missionaries to South Africa than a letter arrived from South America, apparently an Italian-speaking family who read an article which was making fun of Science of the Times, 
And that, of course, just got them curious about Signs of the Times, so they sent to Italy for some Italian copies to be sent over. And, well, guess we need missionaries in South America now. So, yes, it's amazing that Avenus spread so far. They never really planned it. From the beginning, Avenus kind of got dragged around the world. And they were just responding to needs as they popped up in unknown and unexpected places. But what makes it more amazing is that they did it so fast. Yes, J.N. Andrews went to Switzerland in 1874, but the work didn't really begin in earnest until the 1880s. So basically, in a little over 20 years, Adventists conquered the world. Mission fever was everywhere, and about every four days, a new missionary was sent overseas. And of course, this needs to be appreciated in the context of the overall Protestant missionary movement that was going on at this time. In 1888, the YMCA was mobilizing young missionaries across America with the dead serious goal of evangelizing the entire world in one generation. And over the next 30 years, about 30,000 students were sent out of the United States as missionaries. This was the golden era of Protestant missions and Adventists were surfing that wave. At the 1901 General Conference session, there was a veritable sorrow that so little had been done. While Adventists had a presence in many of these countries, it was often a very small presence. In Italy, for instance, there were 15 members. William Spicer, a veteran missionary and the rising star in the church, begged the session to send more missionaries. Pray for more laborers in Europe, he said. Quote, Four hundred millions of souls representing mighty empires face the little band of our workers in that field. Oh, the pity of it, that we have done so little in all and have left great nations like France, Spain, Italy, and Portugal almost, if not quite, untouched. It is, in truth, high time to wake out of our sleep. End quote. Sleep? It doesn't sound like anyone is sleeping. I mean, when you send a missionary every four days, it doesn't sound like you're sleeping. It sounds like you're wide awake, but it was never enough. They didn't feel satisfied that they were in so many countries. Spicer repeated his laments for each region of the world before saying, we are only beginning. And then he asked for a thousand people to volunteer as missionaries. So church leaders were like, yeah, let's go across the world and preach. Let's do this. And Kellogg was standing behind them like, yeah, go get them. Or you could totally stay in Battle Creek. If you couldn't tell from our little mission field pep talk, Adventism of the early 1900s was stretched very thin across the globe. And like I said, they never planned for this. They just took advantage of these serendipitous opportunities or providential opportunities that kept popping up. But this put a huge strain on the structure of the church, which was 40 years old and was never meant to carry the weight of a global mission. Case in point, missionaries could be commissioned by the General Conference, by Kellogg's Medical Ministry, or by the Foreign Mission Board. And none of these guys necessarily coordinated with the others. The Adventist church structure was basically running on adrenaline. It was managed chaos. The left hand didn't always know what the right hand was doing. Let's talk about some of these problems. Okay, so you have the lack of coordination. Got it. Another one was debt. Debt was a huge, huge problem. 
General Conference payroll tripled in the 1890s, even while tithe was declining due to some financial collapses in America. Yay, capitalism. In 1898, the General Conference's debt soared to $200,000 and they ended the year with $61.20 in the bank. Great. By 1901, they were having problems meeting payroll. By 1902, the General Conference president estimated that church institutions together owed about $2 million. Now, this is bad, really bad, because we are way, way past getting grandma to Walmart to moneygram you $50 here, okay? And then there was the problem of representation. Even though Kellogg employed more Adventists than the General Conference did, most of the delegates to the General Conference session, you know, the people who made the decisions, were GC employees. What's more, in 1901, the vast majority of the session delegates were from North America. Now, of course, you'd expect the vast majority of the delegates to come from North America because North America had the vast majority of the members. But the church was quickly growing out from North America, and there were precious few native sons of those lands to speak on behalf of their homeland. And what really irked Kellogg, however, was that since he employed more Adventists than General Conference, very few of his people were considered for delegates. He firmly believed that the medical work deserved far better representation in the body that was making decisions that affected them. And the final problem I wanted to discuss is corruption. And I don't mean that church leaders were taking bribes or embezzling money, but sometimes that wasn't too far off. The church was so deeply into debt that those who imagined that they had a good business sense tended to climb the ladder. And oftentimes, these guys prioritized business sense over spiritual sense. They pushed the review to take on more non-Avenous printing jobs for the sake of making ends meet. And the atmosphere at the review was shockingly irreverent. On one occasion, an employee said that he was going to get baptized, and other employees laughed at him. Now, this was not an isolated instance. Stories like this were circulating scandalously through the Adventist church, and one man delicately explained how this came to be. Quote, Many people are anxious to get their children into the review office, that they may be reformed or saved. And while this, to a certain extent, may be right, it does not tend to increase the spirituality of the institution. Many persons thus employed will stay with us only until they learn enough of the trade to command good wages, and then, without even thanking us for the trouble and expense of training them, leave for the world. Others, not so bright, will stay with us, because they cannot do so well elsewhere. End quote. In other words, you parents send us your rebellious kids thinking we're going to fix them for you. Well, sometimes that does happen, but more often than not, they learn the trade in order to go work somewhere else for more money, or if they're not very good at the trade, we're stuck with them. So, thanks a lot. In any case, most of these problems existed because the organizational structure couldn't resolve them. In 1863, when the General Conference was organized, there were a grand total of six conferences of 30 churches containing 3,500 Adventists. By 1901, there were nearly 100 conferences, 2,000 churches, and 78,000 Adventists. Let me put it to you another way. Do you think a corporate structure for 35 employees would still work very well when you have 780 employees? 
And what if those 780 employees were stretched across the world? And what if there was no internet or phones? And what if... Uh, okay, I think you get the point. So the word on everyone's lips in the late 1890s and early 1900s was that we need to fix this like yesterday. The problem wasn't that people resisted fixing it. The problem was that for every 10 people, there were 12 ideas on how to fix it. And of course, Ellen White had plenty to say about all of this. She wanted to see greater representation in the general conference, including some of Kellogg's people. So she recognized the organizational problems. But she fundamentally saw all of this as a spiritual problem, kind of like she did in 1888. Adventists needed to repent and return to God. After the sanitarium burned down, she only intensified her calls for Adventists to leave Battle Creek and go do something useful with their lives. None of the pioneers had ever envisioned a reality where Adventists could grow up in a bubble, comfortably out of touch with the mission of the church. Literally, walk in any direction from Battle Creek and you'll find the front lines eventually. Speaking about the next generation of leaders, she told the GC delegates, quote, Give them an opportunity to go out and see what it means to wrestle in the cause of God as some of his workmen have. Let them see what it means to build up. Let them go in the waste places of the earth. Let them begin to see what it means to establish things out of nothing. And when they do this, they will understand that God means that his servant shall be linked in one. That every part of the work one part has connection with another part, and another part, and another part, and another part. And there it is joined together by the golden links of heaven. And there are to be no kings ruling here at all. When we stay in our local bubble, we can form tribes. And our tribe, our pet project, our department, is always the most important. Ellen wanted as many people as possible to travel the world and take an interest in the work as a whole and not just the little part that they're a part of. Kellogg, are you listening? That one was for you. This is a worldwide work, and the more people that understand that, the better. So don't whine because we moved your favorite pastor from Iowa and put him in Zimbabwe. He is more needed there. You should rejoice. We are not to stay here with the people that know the truth, Ellen said. Here is a world that is to be converted. In Ellen's view, there was too much reliance on committees and needing permission and to make sure that we have enough money in the budget. Ellen asked, quote, Has the Lord to go to Battle Creek and tell men there what the men working in distant countries must do? End quote. And boy, let's make sure we have Ellen White's approval on everything we say. Oh yeah, she had something to say about that attitude too. I do not ask you to take my word. I do not ask you to do it. Lay Sister White right to one side. You lay her right to one side. Do you not? Never quote my words again as long as you live until you can obey the Bible. When you take the Bible and make that, make that your food, your meat, and your drink, and make that the elements of your character, when you can do that, then you will know better how to receive some counsel from God. But here, the word, the precious word, I exalt it before you today, and do not go and repeat any more what Sister White said. Sister White said this, and Sister White said that, and Sister White said the other thing. You say, what saith the Lord God of Israel, and then you do just what the Lord God of Israel does and what he says. End quote. Whew, 
Why did she get on the delegates about reading the Bible? Well, rumors abounded about Ellen White's eating habits. Some said that Ellen White drank tea so we can all drink tea, and Ellen White had two problems with this. First, the rumors weren't true, and second, she objected to people giving up tea simply because she didn't drink it. She said, quote, If you have not got any better conviction, you won't eat meat because Sister White does not eat any. If I am the authority, I would not give a farthing for your health reform. What I want is that every one of you should stand in your individual dignity before God and your individual consecration to God, that the soul temple shall be dedicated to God, end quote. So yeah, Ellen White was pretty fired up in 1901. I mean, she was 73 going on 74. And hey, we're not going to put up with this nonsense anymore, gentlemen. There was too much dependence on structure, on committee votes, on climbing the corporate ladder. I mean, now we need effective organization. She wasn't against that at all. But even more than effective organization, we need independent, effective spiritual leaders, spiritual entrepreneurs, people who will go get it, go get it done. People who can work well within the system, but who aren't afraid to just go when God tells them to go and do what God tells them to do. Ellen White always seemed to have a knack for seeing the problem underneath the problem. So 1901 was a mixed blessing. On the one hand, the spiritual problems Ellen White saw didn't just disappear overnight. Unchristian people still worked at the Review. Spiritually malnourished Adventists were everywhere. And of course, there were still plenty of Adventists who were looking to Ellen White to know what to do in life. But the 1901 General Conference did solve many of our organizational problems. And the cool thing is that some of these solutions came from outside North America. And this is the real benefit of being a worldwide church. Take unions, for instance. All right, so if a conference was the collection of churches in, say, a state or a province, a union was basically a conference of conferences. This was pioneered in Australia and then exported to the United States and thus the world. Another innovation, this time from South Africa, that the church would eventually adopt, was bringing things like Sabbath school, religious liberty, and and these other departments in closer connection within the general conference. So these departments were often semi-independent organizations before 1901, And that contributed to much of the confusion and inefficiency around. If we bring them all under the same umbrella, if we increase that coordination, if we just make these different semi-independent organizations just departments of the General Conference, well, then we can work better. So 1901 limited the vertical power of the General Conference while expanding its horizontal power. And maybe a better way to illustrate that is just imagining a 20-story office building or something. So before 1901, the executives on the 20th floor hardly ever talked to each other, and each of them had their own employees on the bottom 19 floors, which they would micromanage. After 1901, the executives talked together more, and they had managers on the 19th floor deal with most of the people underneath them. Better efficiency. The unions in particular were given, in the words of the new GC president, A.G. Daniels, full authority and power to deal with all matters within their boundaries. Ellen White saw it as, quote, 
a necessity to organize union conferences that the general conference shall not exercise dictation over all the separate conferences, end quote. And that, my friends, is the spirit in which the unions were born. But if John Harvey Kellogg was happy about getting a bigger seat at the table, he wasn't happy at all about Ellen's call for members to leave Battle Creek. As we've mentioned, he needed cheap avenous labor to make the sanitarium profitable, and if he moved the sanitarium, like Ellen White had wanted, he would lose much of the prestige it had acquired. Plus, C.W. Post, a serial rival, promised to build a new sanitarium in Battle Creek if Kellogg left. So Kellogg felt trapped in Battle Creek, trapped between his beautiful institution and the prophet he deeply believed in. And while Ellen White didn't demand he move, it was increasingly clear that he had no intention of budging. And after Battle Creek College moved away from Battle Creek in 1901, and the General Conference moved out in 1903, both virtually to where they are today, Kellogg felt more and more isolated. And it seems clear to me, at least, that people used the sanitarium fire to beat him over the head, to perhaps suggest that the fire had been God's judgment upon him. At first, Ellen White rebuked such a sentiment. She said, I am instructed to say, let no one attempt to give a reason for the burning of the institution that we have so highly appreciated. Ellen White heard that Kellogg said that he was glad that the sanitarium burned down, because even before it burned down, Kellogg had been working on plans to enlarge the building, to build more on the sanitarium grounds and make it even more glorious. And it wouldn't be long before she got another message from God. I am told that he made the remark that he was glad that the old sanitarium buildings burned down. Brethren, those buildings burned down as a reproof to Dr. Kellogg. Oh boy, this is going to hurt. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. 
Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.